Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. This is Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Hello. Hello. Nice to be back. It's, it's good to be back in the loft, isn't it? We were Definitely. last in Hay at the How the Light Gets In Festival, and then you had a couple of days in the countryside. Yep, I was in Hay, sampling the delights of Hay, and then careering around, and then ended up in, um, not ended up accidentally, but deliberately at Headingley for the cricket, England-Pakistan, on the Saturday, it rained in the morning, and I thought for Daniel's birthday, ninth birthday, it was going to be a rain out, and that was going to be terrible, but it didn't rain out, because the play started, and it was all hunky-dory. And did you have a, a good time at the cricket? I did have a good time. I took lots of selfies with people. We got on the bus on the way back to the station because couldn't find a taxi, nearly stole someone's cab. And then there was the chant started of Bacon Sarney, which I sort of <laughs> managed to close down. Hang in front on, you, of my you children. were on a bus and then the, the whole bus started well, chanting. Well, the whole bus, they were all cricket supporters who'd had a lot to drink, basically. And how did the chant go? Bacon Sarney. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, anyway, That's then quite, we, quite we melodious. Sh- we shut we shut that down. Then there was a chant about Jeremy Corbyn, which didn't seem that friendly. We shut that <laughs> down, uh, and eventually we got to the station. So, but it was fine. Oh well, congratulations! That's yeah, a- I made it. Yeah. Well, um, it's it's all been happening here in your absence. So I gather a man from the council knocked at my door yesterday wearing a lanyard. He says there's been a complaint about the pitch of your roof. Your roof is higher than your neighbours' roofs. Now, um, this this uh, conversation... You've went... been getting up to your roof extensions again, haven't you, No, Seth? well, this is... DIY roof extensions. It was you've been l- rumbled, it matey. It was like this when I you've bought it. You've been rumbled. Yeah, that's what it they all the, say he... with those... <laughs> I know about these things. Well, he, those he, secret roof extensions with your DIY handiwork. Well, let me. Let I just me, don't believe you'd be just, able to do let it. Let me just. Well, obviously, do these hands look no, like they've ever done a day's work? Not, no, not. but here's here's the point. One of my neighbours has complained about this part of my house where we're sitting at the moment, the attic. Do you think it's one of our enemies who is trying to close the podcast down? Oh, possibly David Attenborough, <laughs> Nick Clegg, maybe. Yeah. Who knows? So I'm feeling I'm I'm looking at all my neighbours with a lot of suspicion. Well, now. You, even more suspicion because you were already very suspicious <laughs> of them. We established that some episodes ago. Um, so, other, June, have you got to the bottom of it? I don't know who did it. No. Well, when, maybe we could have a spin-off podcast, possibly. an in- investigative what, journalism. What would we call it? Roof. <laughs> I'm not sure it's going raising the roof. Raising the roof. I'm not sure it's going to. I mean, I think it might have limited appeal. Okay. I mean, okay. I, you know. As much appeal as my sandwich shops. Oh, just something to very quickly mention. As nice as it is to be back in the loft with you, we are going out again quite soon. We are. We're going to be at the Politics Festival, uh, which is being opened by John Major, closed by us at King's Place. We're going to be there on Sunday, June the 24th at 7.30pm. If you look online, you can find tickets. Please do come along. 
It'll be a great evening. Oh, Dan, will Love Island still be on then? Will I be missing Love Island? Mm, I'm not sure. Are you, are you watching Love Island? No, I, I turned it down, but obviously. But When you were running, when it was the election time, did you ever have to do that thing where you pretended to know more about pop culture oh, than you actually I'm do? Oh, sure. I, I know so little, definitely. You seem to have like this big black hole. The other week I mentioned Smashy and Nicey and you had no idea what I was talking about. No. So the 90s are sort of missing for you. Oh, is it the 90s that are missing? I think so. You're quite good on the 80s. Maybe maybe that's true. Yeah. So it's almost like Gordon Brown ate your life for the whole of the 90s. That's quite a good description, actually. (laughs) That's quite, that's more accurate than you could know. Um, so what are we going to be, what are we going to be talking about so, this week? Well, we know about the idea of universal basic income. That was episode one. We're talking about the idea of universal basic services. So this is the idea that we extend free services or mostly free services across a whole range of areas to people as a way of advancing towards social justice. And some people are posing it as an additional thing to universal basic income, but you could think about it as an alternative. And we're going to be talking about that with a couple of academics who've come up with the idea and also with an academic uh, from the Netherlands who's actually going to talk about some of the experience of free public transport where it's been tried around the world. And as well as that, we're joined by comedian Stuart Goldsmith. You might know him from his hugely uh, popular interview podcast. It's called Comedian's Comedian. And he's going to be joining us to pitch some ideas, which could be potential reasons to be cheerful. And we'll be finding out the winner of our competition to be more pirate. You get the book by Sam Conifiende, and you get some help from Sam to realise your piracy. On to our reasons to be cheerful, then. What's yours? Um, I, it's, uh, it's not okay. about the man from the council, no. No, no, that's a reason to not be cheerful. I mean, that's driving me insane. Mm. Uh, I went to see the doctor about my blood pressure this week, which isn't great, but in the course of it, she did say, well, come on, you I mean you're a young man, which that was nice to hear. That's good. Not many people say you're a young man to me anymore. That's good. So there's a mini reason to be cheerful. Did you say I'm a borderline millennial? I should have done. You should have done. Yeah. You were so stunned that she said that. Yes. A young man. Yeah. I'm, I'm going back to see her again. Definitely. Um, and then my other one is I've been listening to a really good podcast. It's actually a BBC radio program that they podcast called Soul Music, which they each episode focuses on a different song. And you get the story behind the song, but you also get people's personal stories. And it's, it's very moving. I listened to one about uh, Leonard Cohen's Hallelujah, And I listened to one about the old standard, The Way You Look Tonight. And I recommend it highly. I mean, don't listen to this first. Make sure you get your fix of reasons to be cheerful but then if you're after something else to listen to uh, this this thing is great um so that's those are my reasons to be cheerful what's yours so mine are about the media moguls um we had double media mogul news in the last week the first is that you you're aware that i've been in a long-running battle to stop rupert murdoch taking over sky news uh, which he's been trying to do here currently owns 39 percent want to join 100 percent we're not quite there but we're sort of nearly there because the recommendation from the regulatory body the cma that looks at this has been accepted by the secretary of state matt hancock to say that even if he takes over sky he'd have to sell off sky news so he wouldn't actually be in control of sky news now there's some fine print about whether he can get control through the back door somehow which we're trying to nail down but it basically is i think it's not everything i would have wanted but it's a lot further forward than when I started 18 months ago on this campaign and people said, well, it's just inevitable. This is going to happen. It was a bid that failed in 2011 when revelations of phone hacking came to light. People said, well, it's just going to be a done deal. He's going to be able to do it. So I feel like we we got a long, long way. So that's good. And then 
The other media mogul news is that Paul Dacre, the editor of the Daily Mail, has set, announced his retirement, which obviously I'm incredibly sad about because, you know, uh, he attacked my dad, uh, said he hated Britain. I won't be shedding any tears about his departure. Reasons to be cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. We're joined now by Professor Henrietta Moore, who's director of the University College London Institute for Global Prosperity, which produced the, the first report of its kind last year on universal basic services. Henrietta, thanks so much for joining us. Pleasure. Nice to be here. Just start off by telling us what are universal basic services and why might we want them? Well, so we all know that we have uh, healthcare free at the point of need. We have education provided for us here in the UK. And the question is, what kinds of other things do we need to have provided for us that will allow us to lead a larger life? In other words, not always to be scrambling for the basics. And so in the report, we talked a little bit about housing is important, transport is important, food is important. But what's really important in this day and age is actually information. So access to the internet, to a mobile phone, and as we suggested, to a television license. And your argument is that those things should be, I think you've got seven different services that you talk about in yep. your report, and what they should all be free for everybody or free for some people. J just explain what... Well, they should be free at the point of need. So, for example, when I walk to work in the morning, uh, I pass a food bank outside King's Cross, but I don't go in there to get my breakfast because I don't need to, Right. If I'm somebody who needs to use a wheelchair, then I need to use a wheelchair. But I don't go to the NHS and say, can you give me a free wheelchair? Uh, and people generally don't. So the advantage of this is that actually, to a certain extent, this stuff would be self-selecting. What's the sort of bigger thinking behind this sort of idea? Well, the broader motivation is if you think about the kind of life people are living at the moment, many people feel that they're not living a full life. They feel they're not getting on, right? Life's a struggle. So we keep talking in the UK about how people feel left behind. We know the relationship between austerity, uh, lack of a good life and populism in politics. We know that this is a severe threat for social solidarity in our societies. And we also know that following uh, the idea of growth as the goal of all economic life has not led to everybody having a sufficiently good quality life. So we've lived for a long time under the idea that economy is the thing that determines the kind of society we have through the mechanism of growth. And actually, I think we should get rid of that idea right away and start from the other end around and say, we as a society should determine what kind of economy we want to have. And so we need to start thinking about how we're going to take care of people. In other words, what is the welfare state for the 21st century. So in a way, your, your starting point is the same as the starting point for people who are thinking about universal basic income, but it, it, it differs in that you're not giving people the money directly. How, how else does it differ? Well, I think what it shares, both universal basic services and universal basic income share the, a sentiment, and the sentiment is that something needs to be done. People need a safety net, right? People need something behind them in order to lead a good quality life. The question is, how should we provide it and how much is it going to cost? That's the difficulty. And the real issue, though, behind this is that when you have universal basic income, you will have a certain amount of money. Now, there are technical things which we can come on to in a minute about how much money and will it be enough to live on and all of those kinds of things. But what that does is it says you have got your money and you should spend it on whatever you like, right? 
And of course, we're all in favour of that. But actually, in societies, there's something that really matters about the things we share. And the way in which the, sh- the, the fact that we share things actually encourages social relationships. It encourages social solidarity. And actually, it's pro-social. This is one of the reasons why in the UK, so many of us are really deeply committed to the NHS. Right. Right. So the question here is, it's not just about can you give people more so they can live a bit better quality of life. It's about can you bring people together through those kinds of mechanisms so that they can decide how to live a better quality of life. And would you argue that this is better targeted at the people who need it most than universal basic income? So in other words, if you make public transport, local public transport free, it's targeted at generally at lower and middle income people who use local public transport. If you're improving free school meals or meals on wheels or the other things in your proposals, legal aid, that, that that's that that's a better, that's going to have more bang for its buck than universal basic income. Yeah, it is. It's going to actually give the bottom 20% of the population more for the money that's spent. Um, and so it's more progressive in that sense. It delivers where it really matters. And one of the reasons it does is because it provides, if you like, a substitution, what you might call a social wage. So it puts money back in people's pockets by not extracting it in the first place. So if you're not paying for your transport, if you're not, you know, fully uh, paying for your housing costs. So if we just think about uh, East London, so if you take housing costs into account, you have 27% of households living below the poverty line in East London. And East London is one of the richest cities in the world. This would have a significant impact. And also, as you know, so much housing stock has come out of public housing. So what's proposed here is a massive uh, increase in building of houses, but also in the provision of housing. And that includes the um, cost of, you know, heating them and so on is covered in that costing that we did. The cost of housing, as we all know, is really high and it's a very, very large part of the money that we all need to spend. It doesn't matter how well paid you are. Probably if you look at your own budget, you'll find that actually an awful lot of your money is going on where you live. And I know your your sort of interest is not in sort of doing down the universal basic income. You, you, you know, you, you're making your own proposal, but you would argue this is better targeted and you would put it sort of ahead of the queue compared to the universal basic income in in tackling the urgent needs that our society has, would, would you? Yes. So if you think about some of these things, um, how will we provide food for people? Well, we're not talking about handing out vouchers or sandwiches on the street or anything of this sort. But we are talking about the fact that there are large numbers of people in the UK at the moment who are food insecure, and we need urgently to address this issue. And just giving them all job seekers allowance, which is what the universal basic income would be, so this would... The, you know, whatever, 73 pounds 10, uh, will not actually make those households more food secure. It would certainly give them a bit more money, but there are many, many other charges on those incomes. And this is one of the problems that families have when you're in the bottom 20% is how do you decide what to spend those very precious resources on? And how would your proposals tackle that food insecurity, as you call it? Well, they would tackle it because we, you, what you would be doing within local communities and local areas is providing food for people who need food in three meals, in other words, 
for those people who need food, who are the most insecure. And that, that need is actually quite urgent now. Through free school meals? Through uh, combined things of free school meals, through, through community food programmes, which would also be connected. We've, in the worked example, we've talked about how to connect them to things like urban agriculture, how to connect them to sort of locally produced food. In other words, how to connect them to many of the things we're already doing around food. So looking at all these great initiatives all around the United Kingdom, which are about food, because we have changed the way we think about food quite a bit. I mean, if we just think about farmers markets, right? So all of this stuff about the nutrition, the quality of food, we're experiencing at the moment larger number of people being admitted into the NHS because of malnutrition. Now, this is not something that we should be in favour of in the United Kingdom at the moment. And we need to urgently address these issues. And the question is, how is the best way to, 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 to address them? In terms of cost, if you look at I mean, when, when we've talked about universal basic income, the outlay has seemed like a huge amount of money. How does uh, your idea stack up in terms of cost against UBI? Well, the, the, the worked out examples that we've done in the report, and it's great reading, it's got lots of nice pictures, so do go and look at it if you're <laughs> at all interested. But um, we have costed all of these worked up examples at around 45 billion, which is 2.3 of GDP. So if we gave job seekers allowance to everyone in the country, we'd be looking at something which was closer to 13% of GDP. So there's a very, very big difference in the, in, in the cost. And there are different ways in which you can think about how to pay for things. But the real problem with universal basic income is that it's the right idea. And people feel strongly that we need to do something about the safety net, but they're less convinced about whether or not we need all our professors and bankers and lawyers to be receiving universal basic income. And why should they be receiving it? And I think, you know, those kinds of things we need to think about, because these are debates that ought to be public debates in the UK about how we decide how to care for people. In other words, how can we afford the welfare state of the 21st century, as opposed to just saying we can't afford anything? Is that a scary biscuits number to you, Ed? Or somebody who's no, worried? I mean it's less scary biscuits than a bigger number. Um, the uh, <laughs> he said, that's good. He said he said profoundly. Uh, I think the issue here is not so much to say that universal basic services is the absolute answer as against universal basic income, because. The situation for me at the moment is we're in a really rather deep and dark hole. So it doesn't make sense to say, let's only use one spade, right? Let's think about all the different spades we can use. Let's get out of the hole, right? If you think about what happened after 1945, which was a sort of refounding of the welfare state and a certain set of basic sort of rights that were introduced, I mean, is that the way to think about this, that you're sort of saying, look, this has got to be a similar moment of reconsideration and and sort of renewal. Yeah, that's absolutely the way to think about it. We do need to re renew the way we approach these things. If we're going to have a modern society, we need to have a welfare state that's as modern as the society we're living in. Professor Henrietta Moore, thank you so much for joining us. We'll provide a link on our Facebook page to, to your report. Thanks so much for joining us. It was a pleasure. And all of that stuff about scary biscuits wasn't that scary. <laughs> We're joined now by Professor Jonathan Portis from King's College London, who authored the report for the Institute of Global Prosperity. Uh, Jonathan, hello. 
Good afternoon. What are we trying to solve with the idea of universal basic services? Well, we've seen a rise in the inequality of earnings in most of the developed world over now really since the uh, since the mid-70s. We've seen a sort of sharp rise in the share of earnings that goes to people at the middle, but especially at the top, and a fall in the middle of the earnings distribution, especially, and at the bottom, although in the UK, that's been to some extent alleviated by the minimum wage. So what do we do as a society about this increased rise in earnings inequality? Well, in the 1990s and 2000s, and indeed, Ed and I both worked on this in different respects for over quite a long time, that a lot of the answer was about redistributing those earnings through the tax and benefit system. So we came up with things like tax credits and also things like the minimum wage to help people at the bottom end of the labor market. And I think, actually, my view is that that was the right thing to do and it had some success. It certainly averted a much greater rise in inequality than what we would otherwise have seen. While I still think the tax and benefit system should redistribute income as much as is politically and economically feasible, that approach has to some extent run out of road um, and sadly is now being reversed of course, by the current government, which is serious cutting uh, uh, tax credits, cutting uh, benefits and, and reducing taxes. What are the factors that mean uh, that that has run out of road? What's changed? Particularly after the Great Recession and the sharp rise in the deficit, it became politically very difficult to sustain transfer payments through the tax and benefit system to the extent um, that was possible before then. But I think also beyond that, uh, um, as well as this rise in earnings, we're also facing some, some factors which are rather newer, which are around what's happening in the labor market, around automation and technology. And of course, uh, um, lots of people talk about the hollowing out of the labor market and the possibility that very large numbers of jobs will be destroyed as a result of that. Now, some people talk that, well, this will usher in an age of mass unemployment. There just won't be enough jobs to go around. Actually, I don't particularly worry about that. Um, that's never happened in human history yet, despite lots of ways of technological progress. And you uh, don't think this is without precedent? Well, the Industrial Revolution was a pretty big thing, too. Um, and it did destroy, you know, uh, um, we had 70%, 80% of the population working in agriculture at one point. They don't anymore. We had 70% of the employed population working in manufacturing at one point. They don't anymore. We've dealt with those changes before. But that doesn't mean there aren't big risks. And the big risk here for me is that we create a greater and greater number of not people without jobs, but people who are in low-skilled, insecure, casual gig economy, but not good gig economy type of But they'll probably have to transition into some other low-skilled, low-prospect job. And that does not seem to me to be a future for society um, that we should be particularly keen on. So we really face these challenges around the distribution of earnings and how our modern labor market functions um, in a way that benefits society. And I think, you know, Marx was, of course, wrong in many respects, but he was right uh, um, about how capitalism continually evolves and changes and how uh, um, technology drives the structure of the economy, which in turn drives the structure of the economy. We need to pay attention to that. Um, and while he was wrong in the short to medium term about capitalism um, immiserating and impoverishing uh, the vast majority of workers, because capitalism has done quite well in many respects in, in ensuring that, that workers get a share of the wealth. In order that that continue to be the case, capitalism can have to evolve again, change quite significantly, in my view, over the next 5, 10, 20 years ago, if it wants to avoid that immiseration risk that Marx pointed to. And, and where does 
universal basic services come into the compelling picture that you've painted? Universal basic services is a way of saying we want to be able to ensure that everybody can fully participate in society. And that is not just about uh, um, or even mainly about simply having enough money redistributed through the tax and benefit system. It's also ensuring that the services that the people need to be able to fully participate and say are available to everybody. That is absolutely not a new idea. We've had the NHS for 70 years. We've had universal education, first at primary, then at secondary. Uh, uh, I'm now up to the age of 18 um, for, for even longer. So the idea that there are some universal services that the state should provide to everybody wholly or largely free at the point of use in order for everyone to be able to participate in society is not a new one at all. The question is, as the economy and society changes, do the, the sort of services that people need to change. So the sort of services that we're talking about providing universally are not services that the state has um, historically done so, but which we think, given these new circumstances, um, are necessary. And just set out briefly what the key elements of it are, of your proposals. But you authored the paper with Howard Reed yes. on the sort of detail of this. So we have picked out four specific services where we think it is definitely worth looking at the case for the state providing to a significantly greater extent directly providing or ensuring that services are provided to people directly, um, free or largely free. Um, and those are, um, first of all, uh, local transport, um, so that people can get around, so they can have access to employment, uh, so they can have access to other local services. And, and, of course, we know that people are constrained by geography, by where they live in terms of what they can do and what they can participate in. And that, and that applies to everybody from people who live in rural areas where actually there are few or no transport services and, and they may be expensive and people have to take taxis, right through to people even in outer London who very rarely, because of the cost of London transport, um, come into the centre. So that's one. The next one was information and communication technology, basically having a smartphone. I mean, I think this is a really good example of how things change. 20 years ago, I think it would have been obviously absurd and people would have laughed at you if you'd said, well, you have to have a, a mobile phone to participate in society. I don't think I had a mobile well phone 20 years ago we all recognize now none of us could function in our jobs our nice good comfortable relatively well-paid fulfilling middle-class jobs without a smartphone why should we expect anyone else to be able to get a decent job find a decent job hold down a decent job develop themselves look for alternatives and opportunities if they don't have a smartphone so what we're saying is that the state should make available to everybody a basic plan, which means a phone plus an internet connection on that phone um, and a sort of basic access to data. It doesn't mean where the state should be providing so that people can watch, you know, four hours of porn a night or whatever. That's not that there's anything wrong with that. See, in the Jeffocracy, that might be part of the how, uh, how many hours? That might be part of the offer. But the state should provide a plan that lets people uh, um, get online and participate because that really is something that you need to have a, a, a decent life in the economy of the future. The third uh, so Service and, and we're sorry that this has to be uh, in there in some ways, but it does is is food, um, you know, and this I think is a sort of fairly basic that everybody should be able to have three decent meals a day. This is different. I think what we're saying here is not that the state should provide food to everybody the way that the state provides primary education to 95% of the population and healthcare to 91% to of the population or whatever it is. We're saying that there should be a fallback so that if you need food, you can get food at no cost. And of course, we already have food banks that, that do provide this service. So what we're saying is that that should be extended 
um, and made a universal service. And I think that, that it's important to know this does not mean that the state is nationalizing Tesco's. It doesn't mean the state is providing um, or Greg's or Greg's um, food free to everybody. It means that if you need it, you can go and get food if you need it. And and I think there, there's this sort of bizarre idea that this would mean that, that everyone would take advantage of this and somehow it would be unaffordable. And I just don't think that's right. I mean, I could go to a food bank now and get food. I don't uh, because I don't need to. And I don't want to because I'd rather buy my food at Waitrose, frankly. Um, and I don't because it would be wrong. Um, and most people accept that. And, and you don't get people sponging off food banks. So um, making food accessible to everyone, I think, is is perfectly feasible and affordable. And then the final one, and I think this this one, to be frank, is the most difficult one, is on housing. Um, and here we're simply saying the state should should radically expand the provision of social housing. And again, this is not a particularly new or even radical idea and that, that the case for it is obvious and nobody should be without a home. Um, there is a huge shortage in this. We have uh, a range of problems in the, the country at the moment, which range, of course, from, from people who are literally homeless in the sense of having to sleep rough, to people who have to live in hostels, to people who live in temporary accommodation, to people who are living in, you know, sofa surfing, to people who would like to move out of their parents or relatives or whatever, but can't afford it. And what about the argument of people who are listening to this, who might consider themselves not necessarily on the left of the political mm. spectrum, who just say, look, I don't understand, why don't we just give people not a universal basic income, but a bit more benefits, money or income so they can afford food, bus fare, etc. You know, healthcare, there's all kinds of reasons for providing it to everybody. You know, if, if it's catastrophic, the costs are enormous. You know, even rich people can't afford it and so on. You don't need to provide free bus service to people. You just give yeah. people enough money to be able to go on the bus. Well, but then, of course, you get into the, the, the usual problems with the benefit system, which are, first of all, the economic problems that um, – if you provide benefits to only people who need them and not people who don't, which, of course, is what we try to do, then you have to take away people's benefits as they earn more and more. So you have yeah. other classic problems in the benefit system means testing. of means testing, of stigma, um, of all the trade-offs. People who are working and can't people afford working, to... Yeah. Um, yeah. And, you know, you, you can't get around these problems entirely. Those are, those are necessary in any benefit system. But it does mean that simply trying to deal with this through cash is quite difficult. Similarly, for, for bus services, there are standard economic reasons why, for transport in general why economies of scale mean that you're actually, from an economic point of view, you get a more efficient and better targeted outcome if you subsidize the service rather than trying to give everybody enough money. So, for instance, the market cost of a freedom pass would in London would be X hundred pounds a year, whatever it is. But actually, if you just give it to uh, to old people, well, the marginal cost of allowing old people to use buses uh, um, or tubes, which they typically don't do during the rush hour, is actually rather small. In some ways, it's quite an efficient way of getting something to people who, who need it. In universal basic income, you either do it through redistribution and taxation, or you start reducing benefits. Com comparatively, what what is the cost of universal basic services? Well, um, the services that we talk about in our uh, paper, we have done the costings, and it's actually uh, um, a relatively modest package. Henrietta mentioned forty-five billion. Yes, which is about three percent of GDP. Now, that's not that's you know that's not 
pocket change. It's a significant sum of money for the, the government. But equally, it's macroeconomically not a sort of huge departure from, from where we are now. It's less than half of what we currently spend on the NHS alone, for example. Um, so, you know, you would have to put up taxes. There's no doubt that, that things have to be paid for. But this is not unaffordable if if as a society we decided it was worth doing we would have to put up taxes so you know you don't get any of this for free you are redistributing and the net effect of this we we have shown would be quite redistributive this would be a very progressive and pro-poor policy overall um, and that means that people at the middle and top of income distribution will be paying somewhat more not in our view an, an unacceptable amount so you published the paper where does this go next um, well, what we're trying to do is to um, engage with politicians at all levels, and that's not just national but local, so as to get people uh, interested in this as a potential direction for policy, at least a complement to some of the thinking that's been done, being done at the same time on universal basic income. Um, ideally, if we can get some experiments going at a local level, we've been talking at very, very uh, tentatively about perhaps experimenting with giving people uh, um, free uh, transport passes in London uh, um, or in any other locality that would be interested to see whether actually that does uh, you know, actually help them change uh, change the way that they they feel that they can participate in society. Uh, we're also going to be talking to local groups about some of the things that are already going on around things like, for example, food banks. Great. Jonathan Borters, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. On the line, we have Dr. Odette Katz, who is an assistant professor in the Department of Transport and Planning at Delft University of Technology in the Netherlands. Uh, hello, Dr. Odette. Hello, good afternoon. Uh, so we've been talking about the idea of universal basic services, which involves the state providing people with key services free at the point of access. And you've extensively studied the impact of free public transport. Could you start by telling us about some of the examples throughout the world where free public transport has been introduced? Sure. So there are many cases where uh, free public transport has been introduced um, in small scale, um, either in terms of uh, for short promotion period or um, small ski resort towns or for specific user groups such as students. Uh, there are very few cases where this has been uh, made universal for all city residents. One such example is the city of Tallinn, uh, capital of Estonia, uh, where about half a million people uh, benefit from free fare public transport since uh, January 2013. So can you tell us about Tallinn? This is the largest scale example. Can you tell us about why it was introduced in Tallinn? What were the politics behind that? Right. So in the case of Tallinn, there was a combination of uh, several uh, policy objectives. Tallinn benefited from fairly good public transport share uh, and ridership, about one third, 40 percent of all trips using public transport. And then it also was uh, highly subsidized. 70 percent, roughly, of all the cost of running the system came from subsidies, 30 percent from ticket revenues. So the main drive there was to cause a further model shift. So people should change from car into using public transport. This was one goal. Uh, the second goal was uh, more on uh, the accessibility front, especially with respect to low-income groups, uh, the elderly, youngsters, and the unemployed. And the third goal was to increase the number of residents uh, which are registered in Tallinn. And that has to do with a very specific context of tax collection and registration in Estonia. And has the policy been uh, successful in Estonia, would you say, um, Odette? So I would say the first goal hasn't been achieved. So um, with respect to party transport ridership, uh, we do see some increase of about 14%. Uh, 
but this increase stems from uh, users that have already previously traveled using public transport and now do this more frequently, or that previously walked or cycled, so short trips uh, primarily being substituted by public transport, which was not, of course, the desirable goal. Um, and then uh, with respect to the second goal of increasing accessibility for specific user groups, this has been achieved to some extent. We do see that these uh, groups now get greater access to mobility, even though there is no indication of this resulting, for example, with higher participation in the job markets or, or any other indication that this actually results with uh, long-term benefits. The third goal has definitely been achieved uh, with uh, 30,000 more people registering in Tallinn so that they will become eligible uh, to use public transport without paying for it. And this is the reason why in the case of Tallinn, this is financially sustainable because additional costs are covered by the additional taxes collected from newly registered uh, residents. Specific case there is that you did have a lot of people uh, living in Tallinn, but not officially registered. So they kept uh, uh, their affinity with their hometown uh, and paying taxes there. And then this measure was exactly introduced to encourage them to actually register and pay taxes in Tallinn. One of the things that's interesting about this area, and we, one of the reasons we're discussing it, is that some people are saying this should now be extended elsewhere, and Paris and several cities in Germany are considering this idea. What advice would you give them in designing this policy? Do you think it might happen? And, 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 and what, what do you think some of the motivations are for it? So we don't have any experience insofar uh, of this policy being introduced in such large scale of a metropolitan area of millions of people. But from the evidence we do have so far, from the places where it has been introduced, we can say that if the goal is to cause a shift from using car to using public transport, that's not very likely to happen. And we know this also from small-scale promotions and experiments also in large cities. What we see is that people are very sensitive to the cost of using the car, as we've seen also in London with congestion charging, and also to parking fees and also very sensitive to how good public transport is, but they are not particularly sensitive to how expensive public transport is. Right. It's very seldom the reason not to use public transport is because it's too expensive. Interesting. And and do you think, on the basis of the success, what sounds like success in Tallinn, that this could work in somewhere like Paris? In a place like Paris, one of the things that one has to uh, uh, consider when introducing just a scheme are whether we possibly encounter capacity issues. Even if uh, people do not shift necessarily from car, uh, if they do travel more frequently by public transport or substitute cycling or walking for public transport, in certain places in the network, in certain times uh, of the system operations, we may encounter capacity issues. So there might be a need to also introduce additional capacity to accommodate and absorb additional demands. Odet Katz, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. I appreciate it. UBS, UBI. Do you have to be one or the other, really? Well, that's a quite good question, I suppose. Maybe maybe both might be quite hard to afford. I mean, I think it's really good that we've done this discussion because, you know, we, we did a universal basic income in episode one. And this is like a sort of challenge in a way. And I think part of my challenge to people who don't like UBI is, OK, tell me something which is, you know, as ambitious. And I mean, what's good about the UBS is it's probably better targeted on the people who need it. Um, partly because of, you know, as we said, heard in the discussion from Henrietta, who uses the services, and partly because it's deliberately targeted in part. It's about collective goods, uh, and that's probably a good thing. It's less individualistic. Would that mean it was cheaper because it was targeted as well? I think, well, you get more bang for your buck, probably. Um, Yet UBI feels a bit more transformative, maybe, because it's like, you know, we're, we're upending the welfare system, we're giving people more freedom, you know, it's got a sort of, I, I think it's also a sort of haziness about UBI. We know what services look like. And the haziness 
is kind of probably makes it seem more attractive somewhat. It's like a new vision. Yes. I think it's an e- UBI is an easier sell in a way it feels across the political spectrum because UBS can feel a little bit like these state behemoths, almost a bit sort of communism-y. Yeah, and I can see that. And, and, and in a way, it sort of appeals to the, some aspects of the right about mm. you know giving people the freedom and putting money in people's pockets. Some critics of UBI have said... Is it downgrading services? So there's been a debate, and not I think about the UK, but about you know healthcare in other countries, and is this about paying for healthcare and so on? Obviously, it's not in the vision of people who support it here. I think I think the other thing that's good about UBS is it directs our attention partly to the here and now, to you know problems of housing, problems of people putting food on the table, affording public transport, being you know left out of broadband and all that. So so you know, maybe this is partly about you know. I mean, if we're thinking about the sort of Jeffocracy utopia, Jefftopia, you know, what would you do in the shorter term? Where might you go in the longer term? You're listening to Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard. But now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com wondersuite. So the moment has arrived. The big moment. The big, another big moment. <laughs> a few weeks ago, we had Sam Conniff Allende on our podcast. His book, Be More Pirate, attracted a huge amount of response uh, from our listeners. It was a special bonus, you know, all you can get, buy one, get one free episode. And we got really big, uh, really big reaction to it. And we said that Sam had agreed to help some people out who wanted to be pirates themselves. We had lots and lots of entries. I'm sorry not everybody could win. I was trying to persuade Jeff that everybody could win, but he said that was <laughs> unreasonable. Um, but we do have some winners, and you're going to tell us the first. Yeah, so the first one came from George Jones, who says, I have a small but significant rebellion for you, and it's to do with sheet music. He says, I've been blessed with the gift and limitations of dyslexia. Thank God for spell check. And I'm also a massive fan of music, both classical and modern. I play piano and sing, but always by ear and not from sheet music. And here's why. As a dyslexic, one of the classic difficulties is missing out lines when reading. Imagine then trying to read a language whose sole meaning is derived from quickly and accurately being able to see which line or space a dot is in. No more. Or at least let's give people that find it difficult a helping hand. And this this is a brilliant idea. It he is says, a brilliant idea. He says, I propose a small rebellion to the current rules, which I think could have a huge impact on budding dyslexic musicians. All you would need to do 
is to make the middle line bold and red and the outer two lines bold and another colour, say blue. This would mean as soon as you saw the colour of the line uh, it was on, you would be easily able to know where it sat on the stave. You could start by having a website that converts it for you and then work your way up to the boards that set... Such a good idea. Work your way up to the boards that set grade exams and publishers. Let's make sheet music more accessible. I think it's really good. It really is. It sounds like that would be a pretty easy thing to do, you know, especially online where there aren't printing costs. Totally. And Sam Conifander agreed to spend a couple of hours with our winners, so he will spend a couple of hours with George to help his piracy become a reality. Yes. Uh, the next one is from Sia, I hope I've pronounced that right, Hotson. She says, I work in Bristol Hospital Education Services as an inclusion worker. And I see so many young people come through who are being failed by schools. And then she talks about other projects which have taken young people out of the classroom and sort of you know made things much more real, much more exciting for them. And it sounds like she wants to do it uh, in her job at the Bristol Hospital Education Service. She ends by saying, I want an education system that is inclusive, teaches life skills and helps everyone to realise their full potential by teaching them in a way that is accessible to them and puts mental well-being first. But I feel like a lost little fish battling against a huge system of people who are telling me to be quiet. Thank you very much for having that talk and making that podcast. So... Sia, we want to send Sam Conifiende in your direction and we hope he can help. And although I said to Ed that not everybody can win, there's another one here that we couldn't resist as well. This one comes from Claudia Blair, who says, Hi, Ed and Jeff. I'm trying to be more pirate in my local town council. I was elected last year together with seven others as indie Monmouth councillors. We as a group were fed up with the council not listening to residents or allowing them to participate in discussions or decisions. We want a council that's not bound by nonsense rules about dress code and when to speak or not. We want a council where people can take part in conversations and have a genuine impact on decision making. A council that's welcome and open to ideas but we new councillors are viewed much like pirates with disdain and hostility from our fellow councillors who seem to like the archaic language the confusing rules and seem to achieve very little we are regular people with normal lives trying to juggle family work and revolutionising the council Um, we need some pirate action this sounds to me like it would be right up Sam's street disrupting a dogmatic organisation like this. So, yeah, we'll get a copy of the book to you and Sam will spend a bit of time talking to you too. And to those who didn't win, commiserations. We liked all of your uh, ideas. Uh, Keep them coming. And if you've got any thoughts uh, about what you've heard on today's podcast or future ideas for our podcast, you can email us at reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at cheerfulpodcast or facebook.com forward slash reasons to be cheerful podcast. Email us, reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com. Follow us on Twitter at Cheerful Podcast or search for our Facebook page, Reasons to be Cheerful Podcast. And here to pitch us some ideas which could be potential reasons to be cheerful, we're joined by comedian and podcaster Stuart Goldsmith. Hello. Hello, thanks Hello. for having me. Are you sort of accidentally a, a podcaster? In- yeah, sort of. My show's been going for about six years, so I wasn't one of the first podcasters, but I'm definitely in the middle slice before the, the kind before of the podcast. Gold Rush. Gold Rush, the Gold Rush, that's what we're calling it, isn't it? BC, you would be BC, basically. Yes, or C. 
There's only so much before cheerful. Very nice. BCP, actually. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So it's been a while. It's been, I couldn't believe it was six years, but it's about 250 episodes. And I am an accidental podcaster in that the, the show is a so series. So am I, of, actually. Are you? Yeah. It's so easy to fall be doing into. something else, then it didn't work out. <laughs> what I do is, um, I interview comics in depth about their creative process and I only podcasted it because the first time I did one, I just did it for me. I wanted to know how to, I'd been a professional comic for about five years and I wanted to know how to write better, how to. And who was that first guest? Um, it was Simon Evans, but I didn't record it. So I just took him for a coffee and then walked away thinking, I've already forgotten half of the amazing things he's just said. So uh, I'm hoping he's going to come back on the show in a few weeks for episode 250. So you've brought along some ideas which could be potential reasons to be cheerful. What's, uh, what's your first one? Anyone whose authority is pseudo-official should have to wear a bright pink uniform so they can't look like the police. And what I'm thinking about is in terms of pseudo-public space. That's a really good idea. Like, I think So it's really the sort of privatisation of what is public space. Exactly, yeah. It did occur to me something sort of tangential to this. Maybe we could buy pseudo-public space. You know the way people club together and buy an area of the rainforest and they go, right, this can never... We'll put it in a trust so they can never be done that. So I suppose what I'm talking about is kind of privatising public space and giving it to the public, which might be, you know, and adding really extra really good idea. I, I, think, I think the sort of... You know, we, we so underestimate the importance of public space for for people and good quality public space, internal yeah. or external. Absolutely. makes such a difference to an area. My angle on it is, is obviously kind of cultural. Is, uh, the theatre maker Augusto Boal said that, that um, theatre is like the trees in a city. You don't notice them until they're all cut down and then the city dies. So I think there's a huge benefit to having a genuine freedom of culture, like a freedom of expression in the street. And in the world of street performing, uh, it's available to everybody or should be in most places. So you do get incredible acts there and people that go on to be famous and do other, you know, the big example is Eddie Izzard, who used to work at Covent Garden. But also it's it's there not just as an artefact, but as a tool for people who are performers. So you should be able to perform in public, even if you're rubbish, because it's a good thing for could, people could to be able to perform. introduce quotas on people levitating, though? <laughs> <laughs> well, that is a very sensible uh, counter-argument. <laughs> I mean, there are so many of them now. It seems to have replaced most street performance. Yes. Well, people pretending to be statues and people pretending to be levitating. You literally will get four Yoda masks in a yes. row levitating in Trafalgar Square. That is upsetting, but I, do, I think the freedom element of it is more important than it necessarily looking good. All right, we'll have it. Uh, what have you got next? Um, so I was doing some shows in Paris recently. Afterwards, I was talking to a, an American uh, comic called Robert Hone, who's been living in Paris for 13 years. And he told me about the intermittence. Have you heard about this? I have not. This is a thing they have in France. They've had it since the 30s, whereby as an artist, if you can prove that you've done a certain number of uh, paid hours per week making your art, then at the end of the year the government will mimic that money and give you that money next year. So you get kind of an artistic pension. So if you do a bunch of, you know, whatever it is, 300 hours of paid stage time over the year, or stage time or paintings or whatever it is, then you take those figures to the government, you go, there's all my proof, there's my receipts. Um, and they say, great, next year we will pay you for 300 hours of work. I know, right? Wow. I know. And check this out. It, they do that on an, on an annual basis in France. In Belgium, you have to do a, it's a, it's a higher target, like 500 hours in the year. But once you've done it once, you get the intermittence for life. Wow. What each year? It's not just a pension. It's a salary. It's a, like a salary. Yes. Sorry. Like an artist's kind of pension. I mean, yeah. 
Yeah, yeah. So it's a salary. So it, it frees you up to work, to create stuff. And this would solve so many problems with, with the comedy circuit in the UK. There are so few working class comedy voices because people don't have the opportunity. Like most comics in London, in order to be in London and work in London for the first few years of our careers, you, you know, you don't really get paid. Um, and so it prejudices people who can't afford to stay yes. in London, don't have rich parents who can support them, all those kind of things. But this would solve all of that. You could you could be paid to take risks to create. You could you wouldn't need to be like my art has to support a child. But it would be great if I could take more risks with what I do. And is is this because like France and the Benelux countries value culture in a different way? Though I think so. I think it must be hundred thousand creative workers benefit from special system. And everyone, whether you're a movie star or uh, you know you're just starting out, as soon as you can prove that you are doing it well enough to be paid. Do we know if it extends to podcasters? Have they oh my God. the rules to <laughs> open it no, up to Everyone, already digital nomads, all of the podcasters are going to land in Belgium and go, there we go, podcasting for life. The think only of- thing, the equivalent I can think of that I knew about was, you know, Franklin Roosevelt in the 1930s had designed, as part of the answer to the Great Depression, Okay, you know, designed a sort of, I can't remember what it was called, but it was a sort of thing where he pay- paid artists um, as part of the New Deal, his New Deal. Mm. Wasn't there, something, wasn't there something in the Blair years as well that did that with... There was the a new deal, new deal for musicians, was that a thing? Uh, possibly, but I think that was about putting people back to work who were unemployed, but right. maybe it's slightly different. A, a lot of the, the stand-up comics that I talk to on my podcast, if they've been around long enough, a lot of the, the people that we think of as the originators of alternative comedy in the UK, a lot of them, when I interviewed them, they talk about the fact that they were on the dole. You know, they were able to draw yeah, the doll. They were true. able to get work, you know, job seekers allowance or whatever it was. And they could draw the doll and they could actually, you could go to the, the doll office and say, I am being a comedian. Can you give me, you know, I can still draw the doll because I'm looking for work as a comedian. It was like a valid thing. Mm. All right. What have you got next, Stuart? Okay. So it's a cross between getting on planes properly like they do in Japan which is just, I just wanted to mention it because this is... How how do they do it? I don't know this. Okay, how could you speed up? Let's see if you can get there. How would you speed up the process of everyone getting on a plane? I would put everybody in window seats in first. Yes. Then middle seats, then aisle seats. Konnichiwa, that's exactly what they do. That's exactly what they do. There was a Japanese student who had the idea as part of a project and then the the entire country took it on because why wouldn't you, on a six-row plane, add rows, can we have everyone in rows A and F... Hang on. Yeah, F. <laughs> so they fill A and F, and then they fill B and E, and then they fill C and D, and everyone gets on fast. Of course that's how well, we should so do it. You knew it immediately. I mean, God, well done, mate. I've, I've have you been to Japan? Were you pretending been, to I've have I've never been to out? Japan, but I've, I've thought done about a lot this of, kind of thing. You've done a lot of time and motion studies in your time, haven't you? I have. Like, I feel that my behaviour in airports is... is Exemplary. Yeah, ex- yeah. I travelled with Ed recently, and I wasn't impressed. You didn't have your belt off, ready to go through the metal detector. Oh, mate, I you love doing that. You slowed us down, your pockets weren't empty. And what uh, I do is I take my belt off and I tuck in my T-shirt so they can see I've taken my belt off. And I this is awful. Yeah. I empty my pockets and pull my pockets out. My objective <laughs> is not only do they not need to speak in any way, my objective is that they high-five me as I go past. <laughs> Actually, what they do is they do different parts of the plane in turn, don't they? Yeah, but people yes, exactly. don't obey that. People who've got um, sort of the airline loyalty cards get to get on first and then they slow it down because they're putting the things... In the- yeah. I've thought about this this a lot. And, uh, and actually, uh, they should do the back of the plane. 
plane first, logically, shouldn't they? And they should do the front, but they do because if you think about yeah. it, but yeah. they actually do the front of the yeah, plane because first. the the people who paid extra want to sit at the front. Yeah, so at the very least they can enter through the rear of the plane, so they can do mm, the front. No, first. no, logically the the best way of doing it is this using using the rows on the outside and working your way in. Yeah, but that is simple logic. Can I? Am I allowed another one? If that, yes, if yeah, I yeah, just yeah. Sort of breeze past that one, please. Genuinely teaching mental health in schools. Teaching right, yeah. mental health as a thing that you learn. Teaching being satisfied with your lot. Teaching the difference between wanting something and needing something, you know, career-wise. Teaching, actually teaching us to be happy. The sorts of things you spend thousands on in therapy later on in your life. They're such basic principles. Why don't we just have one class a week where we say, this is how to cope with imposter syndrome. This is how to cope with envy. This is how to cope with people being famous and it driving you mad. So I'm surprised that there isn't. I mean, there's none, none of this. There's a campaign. Lots of young people are campaigning for it, but it's not They're done. all too depressed to get the well, it's message just, out. Well, they are trying, but it's, um, you know, I'm afraid it's, it's the anti-Gove. I mean, it's sort of, you know, Gove has driving the, driven the curriculum, yeah, in, uh, even though he's gone um, from education, driven it in a particular direction. But it's, got, it's a no-brainer, really, isn't it? It really makes sense. Uh, Stuart, you're taking a show to Edinburgh this year. What, what is it? Yes, I am. It's called End Of, and it's on the free fringe, which means you don't need to book a ticket. You can't book a ticket. You can't pay for it. You have to uh, turn up and you put money in the hat afterwards. So do bring money. Uh, it's on at 2.50 every day uh, at the Liquid Rooms Warehouse. Tell you, I'm putting money in the hat. You're, you're on tour as well. You're doing some dates in the southeast. Yes, that's right. I'm in London at the Soho Theatre at the end of June, and I'm all over the, the rest of the country, the northwest and Scotland before then. People can find out about that at comedianscomedian.com Reasons to be cheerful a podcast about ideas with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd Well we're in the outro We're in the outro Before we go though uh, we got a couple of things coming up that we need to tell you about. A couple of things that are on sale now, live event wise. We're doing the Politics Festival in London. This is something you've done before, but I, I once I, before, yeah. I'm a Politics Festival virgin. I mean, what's I what's did it? not invite you, by the way. It was just I did a question and answer session with Steve Richards last year, but we're doing the live podcast this year mm-hmm. from the Politics Festival. We're closing the Politics Festival Sunday, June 24th, 7pm, King's Place. So this is like when they have the Rolling Stones playing on the last night of Glastonbury or something. More or less. Yeah. (laughs) Maybe less rather than more. Being opened by John Major and closed by us. And uh, and and then the Edinburgh Fringe is now on sale. The uh, the big booklet came out this week, their programme, and you can now uh, buy your tickets to come see us on the first weekend of the Fringe, which from memory is the 4th and the 5th. We're at the Pleasance Grand, which is a great location. The, sort of the, the courtyard there at the Pleasance is sort of the heart of the festival. So that will be fun, I think. We're in the middle of the afternoon there. Fantastic. We should thank our guests, Odette Katz, Henrietta Moore and Jonathan Portes. And thanks to Stuart Goldsmith and his podcast, if you haven't heard it, is Comedian's Comedian. Our podcast was produced by Emma Corsham, who does a fantastic job. Definitely. Week in, week out, you should hear the rubbish that she has to sit through and edit out. So it's thanks true. to Emma. Lots of it. Yeah. Hours and hours. Um, back up and uh, research by Alex Feisbrice and Lindsay Todd. Ed Seed composed music. Uh, James Deacon made our iDents. And on those iDents, Gail Lofthouse is our announcer. We love Gail Lofthouse. And uh, our artwork was designed, of course, by Emily Power time for us to go now children he's been raising the roof he's he's been the mogul defeating ed miliband and these have been reasons to be cheerful (laughs) 